0: Right now, ChatGPT, the way they end up spinning up answers to you is by scraping the web. In essence, they're crawling the web, gathering all this information, and then using it for output, right? If you think about this, Google's been around for more than 20 years. A lot of the search engines have been around for ages. Anytime you guys do a search, would you guys agree with me? Not anytime, but a lot of times when you do a search, there's still misinformation out there. You get inaccurate information. Inaccurate and and low quality both. For sure. So if your inputs are off, your outputs are going to be off because if they haven't been able to figure out what's misinformation and that's being inputted into AI for a portion of the queries and the responses, depending on what you're looking for, the AI to spit out from an answer perspective, you're going to get misinformation as well. Inaccurate, wrong, whatever it may be.
1: Before we get to today's show, let me tell you about HubSpot. Finding a service solution that helps you keep your customers happy can feel impossible. Like try to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at the networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. It brings together service and success together on one platform with AI powered help desk and chatbots to handle your frontline support tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Green, your show for marketing minded people everywhere. I'm your host, Kip Bodner, CMO over at HubSpot, joined as always by my co host, Kieran Flanagan, who's the CMO over at Zapier. And we got a show for you today, everybody. We're going to do some big debates around search, around marketing. And we have a very special guest. We've got Neil Patel, who's the co-founder of MP Digital. He is general marketer and man about the internet. And we're going to talk marketing today. We're going to talk about AI. We're going to talk about a whole host of things. Neil, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: Neil, how quickly you're going to change your LinkedIn headline to Man About the Internet? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: I don't know. I see Neil Patel on the internet a lot. Man About the Internet seems Dude, to like, seemed like the right intro. I wish someone would describe me as Man About the Internet. I love that. Here, I know you had a couple of things that you for sure wanted to kick off with. So I want to hand it to you to get the debate started today.
2: Neil, you're renowned for many reasons, but search is definitely one of the things that you have mastered. And you've done a lot of great takes. So We were watching some of your short-form videos around ChatGPT, the impact it has on SEO and advertising. So we have had the spicy takes for like three months right now that GPT is a natural language layer on top of the internet. It is showing us that like the chat experience is the experience that most users predominantly are starting to fall in love with and it moves everything back a click. So it moves software back a click through the new ChatGPT app store. It moves search back a click. And we think it's very, very disruptive for search and advertising it would be good to start to get your takes. I think you actually are maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum. Am, and then we yeah. can try to like convince each other. that <laughs> Who's right. Yeah, who's
0: right. So I do see AI as being a huge part of the future. So let's go back a little bit. Let's focus actually on chat GPT. Forget even just AI. Let's actually just chat GPT. I know because open AI is taking most of glory right now when it comes to the press and everything related to AI versus BART or anything else out there. Right now, ChatGPT, the way they end up spinning up answers to you is by scraping the web. In essence, they're crawling the web, gathering all this information, and then using it for output, right? The input, you know, like if you think about back in the day, there was these things called article spinners. Article spinners, you shove in an article, it shoves you out of output based on the input. (laughs) You no longer have to put in the input because it's just scraping the web. The issue though, if you think about it, is Google's been around for more than 20 years. A lot of the search engines have been around for ages. Would you guys agree with me? A lot of times when you do a search, there's still misinformation out there. You get inaccurate yeah. information. You can type in anything. Inaccurate and, and low quality, both for sure. Correct. And they've been trying to solve these problems for call it 20 plus years. I'm making up the timeframe, but it's been way more than 10 years since they've been trying to solve it. All right. I know people both uh Microsoft and Google and engineers literally trying to fight misinformation. This is why Eric Schmidt, back in the day, the ex CEO of Google used to talk about brands are how you sort out the people from the cesspool. I'm butchering his quote. And what he would talk about is brands are less likely to put out misinformation. It's not always true, but it's more realistic that a brand is going to do their fact checking and they're gonna put out less misinformation. Again, not always, but in theory, That's what it's supposed to be like. So if your inputs are off, your outputs are going to be off because if they haven't been able to figure out what's misinformation and that's being inputted into AI for a portion of the queries and the responses, depending on what you're looking for, the AI to spit out from an answer perspective, you're going to get misinformation as well. Inaccurate, wrong, whatever it may be. Now, that's just from an article standpoint. I think there's a huge, huge, huge... Aspect, I was looking at a McKinsey study. The real value in AI from a revenue standpoint from businesses is a lot of things like business processes and efficiencies, crunching analytics from a marketing standpoint. Like when you talk to a lot of the Fortune 1000, they're less concerned about creating content. Content's already cheap. The consumer though, is always about like, oh, I can use Chad GPT or any of these tools to spit out a contract or spit out an answer, or write a song or a poem, this is amazing. And all that stuff, yeah, I I think it's going to do wonders for But going back to the question about disrupting advertising, yeah, I think a portion of the queries are going to end up disrupting advertising for search, but not for the majority. Because the real revenue generation from Google and these search engines, when people are typing, is for a lot of the transactional keywords. It's not, how does Google's algorithm work? You know, when you look at back in the day, when you think about the knowledge graph, people are like, oh, that's going to disrupt search because you're just getting the answers and less people are going to click. But if you look at what Danny Sullivan from Google has said, since every year Google's been around, there's actually have driven more clicks to websites. I think Google's going to answer more queries, just like it did with knowledge graph or what's the weather in Las Vegas, Nevada. I just don't see it really disrupting everything because the majority of the ad dollars, like we manage. Billions of dollars in ad spend for companies. And majority is transactional keywords. Like if you want to talk about search specifically, right? It's not social, just search. It really is
1: transactional-based keywords where the majority of the revenue is being spent on ad dollars. I agree with you on transactional keywords. There's a couple of things here. There's AI, which we we should talk about. And there's also, Kira, you kind of alluded to this evolution of a chat user experience and a preference that's possibly going to be driven by individuals and consumers to have a more chat user experience versus a traditional graphical user interface or in Google's term, like just a, a core search box. If we move to a more chat-centric interface. AdWords breaks a lot in that interface. Like the actual experience of how you discover ads does break though, doesn't it? It does. But for a lot of stuff, like if you're looking for a cheap laptop, you're still
0: going to just see ads. You don't want chat GPT to spit out an answer bar and like, here's the best cheap laptop. You're like, yeah, I don't know if you're getting paid for this or what's happening. Let me do my own research and pick what laptop I want. Because what works for you may not work for me. I do agree it's going to change how search is and how we function with it. And it is going to be a more chat-based type of model because what OpenAI did, the most amazing part is it's really good at understanding what you're looking for and giving you an output. And that's the amazing part about it. Yes, there's a lot more magic to it. I just don't see it disrupting too much of the advertising. Yes, you can say some of the queries and there will be a portion that are affected and I don't know how they'll monetize but they can either do what like Twitter is doing. Hey, we're going to charge you for verification. We're going to charge you to start using some of this after a certain amount. The Instagram members were really crazy on the blue tick
1: mark. What was it like 40 something million people in the first 24 hours is what the news was. was a lot of money. It was hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue in the first day, right?
0: Yeah, I think they said 660 million. I didn't see an article from Facebook verifying that, but that's what people are doing with the back of the the napkin math. So I do think that Google will figure out other ways to monetize. And I do think this type of model will actually cause us to use search more. So in theory, you can say, yes, a portion of the clicks will go away. A portion of the ad revenue will go away. But I actually think this will create more usage of Google and other search engines, which will cause a total volume to go up, just like what Danny Sullivan broke down in which Yeah, you may end up losing things from like Knowledge Graph or BARD or ChatGPT, but if the number of people using Google on a daily basis continually increases, there's still traffic and
1: volume to be had and potentially more than there was from the previous year. Well, I buy your argument that AI is gonna actually increase adoption of people just like engaging online, looking and searching for things. The point that you're making that I want everybody watching to understand is the point you're actually making is, I'm paraphrasing you, I believe especially for transactional keywords that choice matters in search results. That having a lot of choice and a lot of options for those keywords so I can do my own refinement and research matters a lot. I don't know if that's gonna be true or not, but I think that's the point you're making versus getting one answer from an AI chatbot. You're like, hey, I wanna see 10 different cheap laptops and I wanna pick the cheap laptop that has the certain specs and things that I particularly want. Is that where you're pushing on? That's what I'm pushing on. So like, let's say if you asked it to create a contract for you, right? it's not
0: going to be perfect. I think we can all agree if you have chat GPT create a contract for you, you may probably want to send it to a lawyer first. And <laughs> I'm not saying this for today. I'm also saying this for two, three, four, five years from now as well. Because again, a lot of the inputs are off and you may need things really customized to your liking. So yes, you may be able to save some money on legal expenses by having a lawyer review versus creating from scratch, but there's ad opportunities hey, would you like a lawyer to review this contract that you just created through BARD or ChatGPT? Click a button here and we'll connect you with the lawyer. I think they'll also start having new monetization methods that Google will end up making money from.
2: Yeah, we kind of break this down into three core components, which is navigational queries, informational queries, and transactional queries. And navigational queries are like, I'm just going to type the domain because I want to navigate to that website. We can kind of do away with those and just think about informational and transactional I think an informational, I think users are maybe lazier than than you are describing them, Neil, in that <laughs> I don't think the average user cares as much about the misinformation as they care about the ease of use. And I think the one thing that chat has shown is that users will always choose like ease of use over anything else. And that's why I think it's the fastest growing app of all time. Also because it just is like a new thing, right? And people love you like of course. Clubhouse is one of the fastest growing things of all time when it turned out It was kind of garbage in the end. But I do think there's something in that, which is like, when I think of the chat GPT experience, it provides a concise formatted answer. And I don't have to do anything else because it's like my assistant. It goes through the blue links, provides me the answer in a way that I can easily understand that. And then I don't have to do any other work. And there's something in that ease of use where users will always gravitate towards the easier thing. But on their transactional, I think that's a really good point on transactional, which is like most of the money on search and advertising is made in transactional queries, which is like nearest to the buy-in step. However, I do think with the new ChatGPT store, it can start to like cannibalize those very, very quickly because now I can actually say, hey, like plan out my trip to Barcelona. Choose me the best things, the best restaurants applicable to me. Just go book them. I actually don't care how it's booking them. I don't care if it's using open table. I don't care if it's using a local provider. I don't care how it actually gets done because I'm a user and I'm lazy, right? I just care that it's done. And then the other thing, I booked me a flight between 400 and $450. In the background, it can go execute that in any of these flight providers. I actually don't care how it does it. I just care that it gets done within the kind of price range that I've given with the seat that I want, with the time that I want. And I do think that there is something there that could really start to cannibalize search because now I don't need to actually go and trawl through these links. And like search is predicated on the fact that you have to query and you have to like go through the blue links yourself so we can interrupt you and try to get you to click on the advertisement link. And I think that's either the bull case for
0: chat versus search or the bear case for search. Okay, let's go back a little bit. You mentioned a great example. Hey, I want to book a trip, let's say to Paris, pick me the best spots to visit. Here's how many days. I want to stay in a hotel in this price range and I want a flight in this price range. And this is the city I'm leaving from. Here's the times I like to fly. Here are my specifications on the seat. If I need a lay flat bed, if I'm just okay with the window seat, whatever it may be, right? You're giving the specifications. Right now, when you do the searches, people are clicking on the blue links and they're making money. To run chat GPT or run BART, It is costing billions of dollars. There's no way Microsoft or Google, or let's look at just Microsoft. Microsoft put what, 13 billion or something like that into the company? They didn't put that money for no reason. I don't know if it's all cash or servers, but this is just an expensive process to run. They're not going to keep burning this money without making money.
2: They're a business. They'll take a percentage of the transaction. Bingo, you got it right. Yes. But what I'm saying is that changes the way that thing is priced because now it's priced on just, I'm the user, I only care that it gets done but I don't need to go and actually go research myself. I just care you, the AI assistant, go take my parameters and go, go does it. So it pushes the search experience out of the user's purview and puts
0: chat as the only kind of layer in between you and the thing getting done. But they'll still make money. For them, it doesn't matter if they're charging per click or charging per transaction. If you look at Google and their history, they've tested the model of charging per transactions before in various different industries. They've also looked to can by certain markets like mortgage and flights. And they've tested some of these things.
2: Why would Google win that? That experience is like not what Google has excelled at in the past, which is the blue links. And it's a chat experience. I wonder why Google would win that versus OpenAI just dominating that and crushing Google in that experience.
0: I don't look at OpenAI as OpenAI. I look at OpenAI as Microsoft. <laughs> because the reality is it's fair. it's mainly funded by Microsoft and controlled So I look at OpenAI as Bing versus Bard, right? The difference right. though with Bard and Bing is Bard has a really good data set of the whole web. Google in theory has the biggest index. If you look at the most popular social network, it's not MySpace. If you look at, you know, a lot of the early adopters, like the most popular search engine, it's not, I don't know which one was the first one, but it's not AltaVista or Lycos or, you know, Yahoo or whatever it may be. A lot of the winners were late comers. And I still think we're in the early innings of AI. And I do agree. It's going to change from that aspect of how you search. What I'm saying it's not going to change is they're still going to make money, right? They're going to figure out how to monetize. And as a marketer, we don't really care if someone clicks on their website. All we care about is, are we generating the revenue? And it's just a number we spent X on a click. Here's a conversion rate and here's how much revenue we made. And here's our cost for Y dollars. On the same aspect, it's like, this is now turning into like affiliate marketing. We spent X dollars. They gave us a customer and they dealt with all of it for us, even the conversion side. And here was our profit. As long as
1: the numbers work as markers, do we really care? So there are a couple of things in this that I wanted to punch on. The first is you're right. First movers don't always win, right? Google was the ninth search engine, I believe that got started and, and, and really won to dominate the market share. The point you all are making in your travel booking example, as, as some dude who's just sitting listening to this debate, the point you're actually making is that right now, businesses bid on keywords yeah. to have their ads appear. And what you're actually saying is, no, they're going to bid directly on the sale. That, hey, you know, I'm looking for a flight between 400 and $450. You have to decide if you want to offer this person a flight for that price, well, right? Different airlines are going to have to decide, like, am I willing mm. to bid in at a certain price because the chatbot is going to just give them whatever the best price is at the flight. That is very different than what's happening today versus like, I'm bidding and selling this fixed cost thing. It's putting variable pricing into a lot of companies and it's going to disintermediate a lot of sellers out there too.
0: But you know this better than anyone else at HubSpot. It's almost the same model right now. You are right. We are bidding on a keyword, but we're all back-ending it out to a cost per acquisition anyways, right? When we're running our campaigns and tracking goals and conversions, totally. it's... Yeah, there's a click, but we're really looking at what is our cost per conversion. Whether it's Zapier or HubSpot, it doesn't matter the company. We're all looking at the same thing. Here's what it costs to acquire a customer and here's our LTV and here's a profit in the
1: long run. What I'm saying is that one, it forces you to be great at economics and unit economics and a lot of marketers aren't. So that's a big thing for everybody watching is like, wow, if you're not close to the economics of your performance marketing, you're going to have to get much closer because how those transactions happen is going to change a lot. And two, like in your flight example, it does kind of kill like Expedia and a lot of the middleware companies that are trying to basically compete on price arbitrage and and like bundling because the chatbot will do that. And the airlines, hotels, what have you can offer that direct. So it's going to be fascinating on the, I think, kind of core like transactional search side of things. And in my opinion, it's progression. Expedia, Mm -hmm. Kayak. I use Kayak
0: a lot. I do agree. So why do I need a Kayak? If I'm already searching on Google and then I'm searching again on Kayak, it's like a search going to another search engine as a user. I just want my ticket. Just give it to me. And if that means Google makes more money, I know this sounds bad. People are going to say, oh, they're going to be bigger, more monopolistic and yada, yada, yada. But as a user, it's more of an easier experience. I don't care. Exactly. That's what, yeah. That's
1: Kieran's argument.
2: And Booking.com, they are like the, you know, poor man's example of basic AI, right? They are just the ability to re-aggregate the aggregator. They just re-aggregate Google to make it easier to sort through. And I think chat is the ultimate aggregator of aggregators because now it just actually encapsulates all these things and filters it all through for you, just gives you the thing you want. The thing I actually don't know, like to your point, Kip, I hadn't thought of that, which is the auction model moves to some sort of price sensitivity in the background. In how do you get chosen among all of those flight providers? why are you the one that gets chosen? And that's the part I've actually been trying to think through because today you get chosen on an ads auction model where you can like bid on the keywords and actually win that auction. Whereas when you bypass the need for the keywords, what does the auction model look like? And maybe it is, hey, every time that person has a certain set of criteria that I can change something in the background to be the best fit for that
1: criteria. Yeah, you're basically bidding on what you're willing to sell your product for and trying to average it out over the long run across a bunch of different queries, right? And it becomes more efficient for the business and the end user.
0: Here's a great example. Let's go back to the travel one. If you're looking for going to LA to Japan and you want a window seat and you want economy with extra leg room and you want a TV, you know, on your seat and you want these food options, I'm making this up. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of airlines that probably fly that route, but ones if the other airlines don't have that seat available, but they have different seats they don't have to pay for that cost. Mm -hmm. Right now, they'll pay for that click going to someone's website and their conversions won't necessarily be what they're looking for because like, oh, we don't have that option. So as a business, this is easier. I'm only paying for what I have. I'm saving a lot of money and
1: time getting a lot of clicks that aren't going to convert in the first place. Yeah. Well, look, that's the key point here. The more you move the bidding and the ad experience closer to the product and the product cost, you're going to increase your quality of customer, right? And you're going to yes. have lower risk that you buy all these potential customers that actually don't want your product.
0: And I think it's going to go one step further. I think your transaction is just going to happen on Bing or I think it's gonna happen on Google and you're not gonna even go to the airline to transact and they'll be like, cool. Is it Google Pay? I don't know what Google calls there. Yeah, it's Google Pay Google Pay or one of them, right? Or Apple Pay. Like it literally is gonna be, oh cool. Click, you're done. There you got your information and you're off into the races. This is the whole thing about the ChatGPT app store That's wild. which is
2: like, why do I go to any of these software providers, websites, or even their apps? Why do I go to Instacart when I can just like ask ChatGPT to use Instacart for me? Why do I go to any of these products when I can ask ChatGPT to use it for me? Now I've just commoditized like every user face and app because I don't actually care about any of these apps. I just care that they exist as a plugin. And I don't want to know about them. I just want to know my thing gets executed, which actually completely... Like OpenAI is now like the aggregator of all these apps and it commoditizes them. And so it now actually has a huge power over how to wield that in terms of your app getting picked over another app.
0: And a lot of businesses are scared, but at the end of the day, what's going to make a business win is you do what's best for the consumer. Like I don't look at Expedia as doing what's best for a consumer. I just think they're a middleman that just found inefficiency in a marketplace. I agree. And the first result being Google, where people go to or Bing or wherever, they need to fix that right? Most people that I know, because we've done a lot of work for different travel companies, it's not like people are like, let me just go to Delta Airlines and book. Because not every airline flies specific routes. Sure, if you already know what airlines fly specific routes and you only leave from one destination, all right, you're going to end up doing that. But for a lot of people, they're just looking at like, oh, how do I get to hear from this location? And if you end up as a business, build the best experience for the customer, EX yeah, like Amazon, right? If you look at the behavior of young people, not like my parents' generation, but really young people in their 20s and 30s, they don't go to the grocery store to buy toilet paper. They just go to Amazon, be like, toilet paper, click, subscribe, comes to their house, it's prime, it's more convenient. They don't understand why parents go to a grocery store to buy toilet paper. Like, this is inefficient and backward. But they obsess about the customer. They provide the best experience. I believe it's going to come down to building the best product or service for the end user and having a really strong brand. Cause like, if you think about Nike, there's a lot of shoes that build similar quality shoes. People love the brand. Let's go back in the day. I think the HubSpot founders invested in David Cancel's company. I think it was called Drift, was it Drift?
1: Yeah, it was Drift.
0: It was Drift, all right. So I don't know if most people know this, you can do a lot of the same stuff you can do in Drift and Intercom on HubSpot for cheaper, right? So what have people ended up doing? I know at some of our companies, we just use your solution and you could say, oh, you know, Drift does this or Intercom does this. I'm like, yeah, HubSpot does it. And as an end user, maybe Drift has some other features. I don't know, but for what we needed, you guys did
1: it all and it was cheaper. It was more convenient. Bundle and cheaper. Bundling matters, right? To the end user and all of this. Yes, but, but not just bundling. It's all one place. Convenient. So
0: super convenient, yes, right? To be exactly. even more specific. And it was cheaper. They could offer 20 other features that you don't have. But if I don't need those features, it doesn't matter. It's about delighting the customer. And that's what I was getting at. Like with building a brand, if you have a strong brand and you're delighting them and you're delighting them like 98% or enough of the users, those edge cases for those 2% Doesn't matter with Zapier, you know how many competitors are out there that do exactly what Zapier does. Some are even cheaper. We still use Zapier. Why? It's just a brand and it works and we've been using it forever and it's just known for doing this. Like there's something to be said for having a really easy to use product, clicking some buttons like I have on Zapier and it just works. And
1: that's where businesses will need to go. Totally agree. Yeah. Convenience and price are really hard to beat. We'll be right back. But before, let me tell you about another podcast I love. Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Ever noticed how the smallest changes can have the biggest impact? On Nudge, you learn simple evidence-backed tips to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, grow a business. Every bite-sized 20-minute show comes packed with practical advice. Nudge is fast-paced, but it's still insightful with real-world examples that you can apply. Listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Neil, you work with some of the biggest brands across the globe. What are you telling brands that are heavily reliant on search right now? Because there's like a lot of, I think, fear among companies who SEO may be a moat. And they're looking at a lot of the people who are saying, wow, like this is really disruptive to search like me and others and saying (laughs) like, wow, like do we even have a moat in this post AI world? Like does search become much less powerful? Are you having those conversations and kind of what are you telling those people? Yeah, so it's
0: a little bit different. So we're five years old. We're small compared to you guys. We're around 750 employees. I know HubSpot has a ton of employees. We're bootstrapped. We grew really quickly to nine figures. It wasn't that hard because I also had a really big brand. And again, most of our customers are larger corporations. And when I'm saying larger corporations, I'm talking about like Adobe and Cisco and just like really large brands. And we do work with, You know, if you look at Zapier and HubSpot, you guys are actually large companies, multi-billion dollar companies. But I'm talking about like really large corporations where they're like, we have a 100,000 employees and we don't even know what most employees do, right? That's the reality. Like if you're a manager (laughs) at a really big company, there's no way you know what a 100,000 people are doing. And not to talk crap, it's just the reality. When you look at most big companies, we don't have one client that says SEO is a moat or search is a moat when it comes to paid ads. All big companies, if you look at them, if you even look at like a HubSpot or Zapier, your revenue, once you get to a certain size, it's not coming from one channel. It's coming from a mixture of all channels. And a lot of it, when we look at one similarity across all the companies we work with, a lot of the revenue comes from their brand. Yeah. No joke. It doesn't matter if it's a boring B2B company. Mm -hmm majority is coming from the brand. And we work with a lot of cool companies and most people haven't heard of them. Like one that we work with is called Fortive, right? They're a spinoff from Danaher. It's publicly traded. They're really large. Most people have not heard of them, but most people have used their products in their life. You just don't know what they are. Like if you went to a gas station, you've used one of their products, right? Like almost everyone has. And it's just, their necessities in this world. But if you think about a lot of the revenue that these big companies generate, it's their brand right. and outside of their brand, it's a massive long tail of, oh, it's some search, SEO, some paid ads, some social media, Instagram and TikTok and email marketing and word of mouth and partnership programs. Like it's a combo of all. I haven't really seen any one large company. I'm talking about multi-billion dollar company, where they're like, we make all our money from like Facebook ads or just Google ads or SEO. <laughs> so most aren't really worried about a moat. No or search. It's omni-channel. What we've seen with the big brands is the moment you take an omni-channel approach and you embrace everything, we notice that the CPAs for all your channels go down by more than 10%.
2: Yeah, I think that's pretty true. Like when you get to a certain scale, you don't have one golden channel. You have multiple channels that actually equate to a certain part of your revenue. I guess because we're on tactics and you are you know renowned for coming up with tactics across the web on different things. If you had to set a, set a marketer down today and just say like you know, you're a best practice marketer. Like you actually see the world in terms of like all this best practice advice. And let me like correct you in a couple of things. Here's some controversial things you probably have never thought about that work really well. What are some of those, like some of the more controversial things that if you were in a, you know, a marketing conference and you said it, you would get some certain, certain reactions from marketers? So
0: one, I think software is a race to the bottom. A great way to market is just give away tools for free. HubSpot's been a big advocate of this for years. If you look at Darmesh and what he did with, is it the website grader? Is that what it's called? It's a grader. Website grader. Website grader, yep. yeah. The website grader is not a premium tool. It's a free tool and a portion of them. Even if you get a lot of users, I get all of them won't be HubSpot users, but a small fraction of them can be HubSpot users. Email signature. Don't pay for email signature. It's free. Very, very small fraction of them, even though it's not the majority, can end up using your product. If you look at Zapier, for most companies, they don't need to pay for Zapier. You can do a lot of it for free, especially if you're a small business. When moment you get big enough, you don't care. Like you're already using it, you'll pay because you have a lot of hooks and you're making enough money where it's really worth it for you. Then you don't have to hire full-time developers, right? So that's one controversial thing. It's funny, I've talked to a lot of VCs. I was talking to Sequoia Capital, I don't know when, this was like a year and a half ago. And I was telling them, you know, what's funny is like if you look at MailChimp as a market, like the email segment, we were doing back to the napkin math on how many emails MailChimp sends out. They got bought out for, I think, $11 billion or somewhere around there. And I could get the same amount of email sent out as them using third parties for around $5 million a year. It was something like that. It actually wasn't that expensive to send out the emails the big cost is to acquire the customer. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) It's not actually to run the the, the emailing system to send out emails. Yeah, you gotta deal with spam and other things, but like the big cost is actually generating the customer. And I'm like, huh, it would be cheaper to sell software for free or give it away for free and figure out a better way to make money. And I'll give you a great example of this. I think that'll resonate with everyone. If you look at paychecks, so Paychex has a market cap of thirty-nine point four three billion dollars of this recording. All right, are you, you guys are all familiar with United Healthcare? I'm assuming. Yep, I am. United Healthcare, their stock is one of the biggest insurance companies. This is health insurance. is four hundred and eighty five billion dollars. They're ten times bigger. It doesn't cost that much to send out payroll and just send people money. There's ways to make this super super efficient and really affordable. The cost per click for a lot of these payroll software words, it's like 60, 80, sometimes even over $100 a click. That's not for a customer, that's for a click. <laughs> give away the software for free, make your money to all the people that are using your software. Eventually they get big enough and say, hey, do you want health insurance? We offer it. Mm. Plug and play and make your commission there. And you did something like that for your agency, right? You bought Uber Suggest. Do
2: you want to like give a little synopsis of how that went?
0: Yeah, so we bought UberSaaS for 120. I probably put in maybe three million into the software to get it to a place where it can generate enough leads. We did the same with the tool called Answer the Public. We bought it for 8.6. We overpaid for it at the time it was doing maybe a hundred grand in EBITDA. We looked at that. You yeah, yeah. and I thought about buying that
1: a couple of different times. Yeah. yeah, 8.6. Yeah, I didn't know you bought that actually. Yeah, didn't you yeah I didn't that. know you bought that. 8.6 is definitely more than I would have spent, dude. It was expensive. It was expensive.
0: And, you know, there were like, all these other companies are, and we we're like, man, we couldn't get them down low enough into uh, price point. And we were trying to buy them for, I think it was... million, somewhere around there, maybe six. And because it wasn't fully burdened when they're like, yeah, we're doing a hundred grand a month. I'm like, you have no employees and no expense other than servers. This is not a true (laughs) (laughs) hundred grand a month EBITDA business. So they're just like, we want 8.6. Like, how about you give us six upfront and then you give us the remainder over a year and a half or two years. It was something like that on payment plan. So we're like, all right, we still don't want to pay it, but we ended up changing some things with the business. The traffic grew 30, 40% really fast, and we changed some things with the business. We got the EBITDA to 200 grand a month really fast, fully burdened with employees and all that kind of stuff. So 2.4, we'll get it to 3 million a year really quickly in EBITDA, but we didn't care about any of that. So when we were doing diligence on the business, We were looking at how many enterprise companies were using these tools. And you had a lot of big brands, a lot of Fortune 1000. When we were looking at Fortune 1000 companies, it was something like close to 70% of Fortune 1000 brands were using Answer the Public. Wow. All right. So the way we make money, forget the tool. Even if it didn't make a hundred grand in EBITDA, we wouldn't care. We start calling up those customers and we're pitching them on services that are costing them not 1 million in the multi, multi millions of dollars a year in closing deals. So when you look at it from that aspect, it has a big user base. We don't care about the revenue from SEO software or PR software. We're like land and expand. Some of the deals will only sign up with us for like three, four, 500 grand a year. But this will be Fortune 1000 companies that have 30, 40 divisions and a few hundred thousand employees. And it's like land and expand. Oh, you're an insurance company. We got one division. Then we got three divisions cause we did good work. And then we're at seven divisions. And next thing you know, that customer's paying five and a half million dollars a year because we got them from using Answer the Public and we only bought that company for 8.6. And if you look at a customer for us, that's enterprise, they should last at least five years, right? Numbers are a little bit skewed because we're still young. We're only five years old and a bad economy makes churn go up in marketing for pretty much any segment. For everybody. But in theory, our CEO comes from Dentsu, which is one of the big ad agency holding companies. He's like, your enterprise client should last at least seven years. So if you got someone from one of these software solutions paying you $5 million in the last seven years, the EBITDA
1: that we're making from that one deal more than paid for the whole acquisition.
2: That's yeah, pretty cool.
1: And you made Answer the Public profitable, right? Like this is the magic trick. You took the risk to outlay the capital, right? Yes. For answer the public as a lead source, but you knew you could still basically make it break even or profitable as just a standalone thing. And most companies won't do either one of those. Most companies won't say, hey, I'm not going to take the risk. I'm going to go and rent some attention from Google and Facebook. I'm not actually going to go and actually buy or build any real assets. And that's what you did. And if you're watching the show, like that's what matters in today's world. You got to own shit. If you don't own shit, there's little like no leverage that exists there.
0: Yeah. And when you own, sh- you don't have to worry about the chat GPTs or the bars or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Own real estate. You're owning the media. You're owning the attention.
2: Neil, yeah. yeah, can I just go back to just like make sure I get the numbers right? And Uber suggests you paid 120K and put in 3 million on that tool. Uh huh. The data yeah. was
0: really expensive and the server costs were really expensive. Then we started monetizing a little bit from a software standpoint. Our goal was never to. Generate a ton of money from software, but we try to keep enough of it free where we keep getting more and more leads year after year. And then what we do is we monetize enough of the software for it to be profitable, similar to Answer the Public. But those two tools, Ubersys alone accounts for more than 40% of our revenue. Wow. So if we look at our clients at our ad agency, more than 40% of them are Ubersys users. Answer the Public, when we were looking at acquiring it, was roughly 60% of the traffic. We've grown it, we've also grown Ubersys traffic. Answer the public right now gets around 80% of the traffic that Ubersys gets. And Answer the public, when we look at it from a revenue standpoint, it doesn't even make up 5% of our revenue, but it's going in the right direction. So we think over time, it'll have a massive impact. And when we look at if we were in all the countries we needed to be, we think there's a really quick roadmap to getting to half a billion a year in revenue just from all the leads that we're generating. We just need to add the headcount and the region expansion. I think it'll be a struggle. to take a while for us to get to a billion without M&A and bolt-ons. But it's a bootstrap business, right? No investors, no board.
1: It's a great lifestyle. Yeah, not a bad life when you can build a big business without the investors and the board to yell at you. So, okay, so those two tools are essentially like half the revenue for this agency, right? Half the revenue were attributable to those two tools we just talked about. Where's the rest come from? Word of mouth and good work. Okay. Client upgrades and word of mouth and referrals. So 40 plus
0: percent of our customers are Ubersess users, right? Mm-hmm. Forget the Ubersess software revenue. That's not really the revenue, the answer to the public revenue, the software portion, not really much revenue for us. The real revenue comes from the services, right? Because when we were looking to raise money, that's why I had the calls with the Sequoia and stuff like that, we were struggling to get bank debt for AR. Because when you're dealing with some of these big customers, they're just like, yeah, we want you to flow $142 million in ad spend. And even when you're making millions <laughs> a month in profit, you can't <laughs> float $100 million in ad spend <laughs> oh, really easily. Like that's no way.
1: And they want that on like 60, 90 day net terms yeah. too.
0: So then we started going, we started calling up the Sequoias and this stuff because we're like a new version of Pilot Accounting. They invested in Pilot. And then we had a call with Bezos Expedition, Melinda from there. She's like, you know, you can just go to, at your size, you don't need venture capital anymore. You're highly profitable. You can just go to the banks and just go get them to float your AR. So then we switched to talking to VCs and be like, hey, let's just talk to the banks. And the bank's like, as long as there's a marquee account, like a Microsoft or one of those, like we'll float your AR on ad spend all day long because the risk of a Microsoft not paying, this Mm. isn't like a cool startup that just went public. You're talking about real EBITDA on a quarterly basis where you don't have to worry in a recession or not if they're not going to be able to pay their bills and their valuation isn't based on stock price, it's based on real EBITDA. And the banks would fund it. So at that point, we're like, oh, we don't need to raise any venture capital. But going back to the statement I was trying to make or the point I was trying to make, it used to be 40 plus percent came from the software, the service portion. And I remember in our pitch decks, we actually use HubSpot example. If you look at the marketing industry, we thought it was backwards. We're like HubSpot has majority of the market cap. If you look at your market cap at the time I was doing my presentations, it was like 15, 16 billion. And we're like, if you look at a market cap of Omnicom, it was the same market cap, but Omnicom was doing an EBITDA what HubSpot had as revenue. And the reason the market caps were the same is Omnicom's an inefficient business. And what we were saying to investors was, majority of the money spent in marketing was on services, not software. Give away software for free or close to free, charge for services, and then go and use AI and tools to automate as much of the services as possible. You won't be able to automate everything. And then go have these services businesses be super efficient. And we started producing good results. And the good results ended up making it where if we look at around 71%, 72% the last few months of our business, it's actually coming from word of mouth. Mm. It's not even coming from SEO or software. And we believe if you fast forward, call it three to five years, almost all our revenue will come from word of mouth and none of the tools or anything like that especially
2: because of the kind of companies you sell into, like yeah. larger companies. It is such like word of mouth within that, you know, you get to a certain company size and they all just kind of recommend each other. I think that is a really incredible insight, which is I've always thought of like buying software to help other software grow. Like that's typically even when we looked at that, it was like, mm-hmm. okay, well, how does how about our core platform grow? Whereas what you're doing is you're like buying incredible tools, but then wrapping services. Like the services thing is the actual thing you're going to monetize on. And I hadn't thought about
0: that before, which is like freemium for services. Yeah. But let let me rephrase this. I would have done what a Zapier or HubSpot did. I'm too late to the game. (laughs) Your business models are amazing. I wish I could have done that. Look at the market caps. The public markets will value them very high for a very long time. I don't think Zapier is public, but the private markets will value you high for a very long time. I'm late to that game. So I look at entrepreneurship as disruption. Mm. It's too hard to say, I'm going to go and create a freer version of HubSpot. It's already free enough. I'm going to go create a freer version of Zapier. It's free enough. It's too late. But there's these dinosaurs like WPP and Omnicom, (laughs) and they're not doing like a billion, two billion in revenue. They're like, Oh, we do 15, 18, like billion in revenue. Like these are massive markets. Right. Not from a market cap perspective. I'm talking about from a dollar perspective, like just pure yeah. business economics, massive revenue, massive EBITDA that needs disruption. And what we're like, huh, majority of marketing dollars other than advertising is not actually spent on software. It's spent on services. It was what mm. our realization was. And it was too hard to disrupt the software players. And we're like, let's disrupt these old school, Service providers and what we ended up learning as we kept growing. The reason we grow through word of mouth is because it's really edge cases. Oh, we're like Mitsubishi. We're in Peru. We need a global ad agency that we can deal with in the US or Canada that speaks English, that has people down there that's big enough where we don't have to worry about the laws and business ethics and practices. And they can just handle this one thing for us in those regions. And we're gone to a point where. That's where a lot of our revenue comes from. And then they do it in one market and they start doing it in more. And they're like, oh, Mr. BC also owns this other brand and this brand and this division. And then it's land and expand.
1: I love it. Yeah, classic enterprise land and expand. All right, we're running out of time. We got one last question. What is the most underrated part of marketing right now? What's the thing that like, you feel like too many people are ignoring and they should be going harder? So I'm actually going to give you two things and they both kind of line. Okay, The please. first
0: one is creatives. I know Chat GPT or open AI has tools that can now spin up images. And there's a few other ones that are working on spinning images and all that kind of stuff. But the one of the biggest leverage points in marketing is creative. And I'm talking about creative from like your ad image to the landing page, how creative you're getting, like the squatty potty videos, which you guys have all seen, or the Harmon brothers. Like that kind of stuff is really hard for AI to produce. Cause it's like, what kind of crazy stuff can you just end up coming out that will just cause conversions to go up? Which brings me to my second point. AB testing. Those are the two things that most people ignore and don't really focus on, but they provide massive leverage. Because if you look at ad costs, they're continually rising. I understand right now in a bad economy, sure, it's getting cheaper. But if you look historically, it keeps going up quarter over quarter. So the real winner is how can you optimize for conversions? And whether that's copy landing pages, but a lot has to do with creativity, not just in your ad creatives, but your copy and your scripts and how you're going to produce more things like Harmon Brothers or get creative, like in the B2B world, like what we did in marketing. Hey, don't charge for tools, buy tools, give them away for free. The HubSpots of the world and the Zapiers can't do this because at your guys' size, you can't go to the publicly traded market saying, hey, we're going to make HubSpot fully for free, be a service company and start our business over again, right? (laughs) No, no no way. (laughs) How do you do things in a different way to make your marketing economics work?
2: I love creative, not just for visuals, but even just for the way you described it, which is how can you do something much more differentiated in how you grow your company? Like you were disrupting an archaic model by doing things that were much more in a typical like software go-to-market, like have freemium, like upmarket a product around it, land and expand, and brought that to like an archaic market. And so that's a creativity in how you build your business. And so I think there's like the creative part of just like the visuals and the aesthetics and how you stand out in the internet. But then there's like the creativity you bring to how you think about problem solving. And people don't think about that. Like everyone just falls into the lazy, this is the way it's been solved in the past, so this is the way I'll solve it. And that is just
1: a surefire way to do average work. Totally. First of all, couldn't agree with either one of you anymore. Also, remember in the world of AI, I love AI. AI models give you more of what they know about, what has already existed in the world. And true creative that brings something brand new into the world that's never existed before is really how you stand out and how you're differentiated. So I'm totally in with you on the creative side of things. Neil, this has been awesome. I think we covered a bunch of ground. It was really fun having you here. And until next time, everyone, this has been Marketing Against the Grain.